I recently talked with Julian Verlegoy. Julian is the founder of Skip Labs, a company building infrastructure for reactive applications. Before Skip Labs, Julian spent nine years at Facebook where he was a tech lead for both Hack and SkipLang. In this interview, we discuss Skip Labs foundational components, SKDB, Skip Storage, and SkipLang. SKDB is built as a reactive database that features performant materialized views, diffing between databases, and streaming via ephemeral tables. Skip Storage and Skip Lang serve as building blocks for SKDB. By the time you hear this, Skip Labs will have launched, so I invite you to check skiplabs.io and SKDB for more details. In the meantime, please enjoy the following conversation with Julian. Oh, on one final note, I apologize for the tin can sound from the microphone. Since this recording, I've purchased a better mic, and future recordings will have better audio. So last we spoke, I think we mostly talked about skip DB or SKDB. And I think in talking with you about that, a few things came out of it. One of which is it sounds like you're working on something called skip FS or some file system for that enables the DB as well. And then mm -hmm. of course you have skip Lang, right? Which is the, the work that you did at Facebook. And yeah. so I was, <laughs> I was thinking about this last night. I was like, there's almost a one-to-one -one correlation between those three projects and the things that I'm paying quite a bit of attention to now. So the, the sort of spaces, three of the spaces that I've kind of spent some time in recently are, you know, durable execution frameworks. Mm -hmm. The second is like edge DBs, kind of the Terso, LibSQL, you know, LightFS, Lightstream, SQLite area. And then the third area is sort of conceptually this pattern we're seeing where people are moving serverless infrastructures, persistent storage, basically to S3 as the primary store. Like it, there's some version of this, which is, you know, tiered storage, but then there's a, a more extreme version that I'm starting to see more now where people are using S3 kind of as their primary store. So yeah. I, examples of this would include uh, Warpstream, which is a pub, Kafka pub subsystem, uh, Turbo Puffer, which is a vector search system. And then like Neon, I think is sort of the canonical example where they've got like this super, super duper. Uh, when you mentioned them, I was looking at looking at Turbo Puffer. Right yeah, it's, a, we're talking. It's, it's pretty new. Uh, it's pretty new. It's interesting though. They're, they're trying to, you know, serve serve queries essentially straight from S3, and then they put a, a cache in front of it. And I think, you know, there's like variations on this theme on the more OLTP style databases is definitely, they, they bolt on either some kind of transactional key value store or some consensus based right ahead log um, on top of S3 so that they can, you know, provide transactionality and low latency without uh, having to worry about dealing with S3 directly. But then there's various read caches, write caches, write back caches and stuff. The reason I raise these three things is because when I look at the skip stuff, it's like skip DB very much could be to me like an edge database kind of thing. The skipfs stuff to me could be very you know sort of or thought, or, or analogous to uh, the sort of serverless persistence thing, and then skip lang <laughs> could be I think a foundation for something that's more um, you know durable execution like. And so it was just striking to me how the stuff you're working on kind of spans all three of these areas. So I've, I've dumped out a bunch of stuff there, but maybe I think a good place to start I think is with with the skip db stuff and the, the I think the stuff that you're currently working on. If I you know, or yeah, 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 I'm working on SKDB yeah. right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, what can I say? So maybe I can give a little bit of context on what these three things are, and then we can talk about you know how they position uh, against yeah, what's, uh, what's out there. So you've got SkipLang, uh, SkipLang, the version that's out there. So if you go on SkipLang.com, you'll see that there's a website with a documentation about the the language, etc., etc. But the problem is the open source version that is out there is pretty much unusable. That's not what we use at Skip Labs. <laughs> and we plan to, you know, release a version of Skip that actually works for everyone relatively soon, but we didn't we didn't have time to do that. And the language has changed. Well, the language doesn't has not changed all that much. What has changed a lot is the runtime uh, because we wanted to support WebAssembly. 
And it turns out that writing a garbage collector to target WebAssembly uh, and a runtime in general is difficult. It's, it's, uh, it's a can of worms, if, uh, to say the least. I had my nose in that stuff for a long time. But so what is Skip? What Skip is, in a nutshell, is a programming language that gives you very strong immutability. And that's pretty much all it is. And the reason why you care about that stuff is when you're going to have durable execution or if you're going to do reactive programming like we do, you will have to store things in a cache, right? That's, you will have to store objects, long-lived objects in this, right? And when you do that, you better have a guarantee that those objects are immutable or a very tight control over the effects one way or another. Because if you start mutating objects in a cache, well, things are not going to go super well for you. So there's the obvious solution that consists in making a copy of the objects as they come out of the cache, and that you can do. But the problem with that is that it's for reactive programming, it's, it would be a showstopper. Uh, the cost of copying would be too high. So to give you a concrete example, the skip compiler is written in skip and the skip, because we wanted the compiler to be reactive, incremental, uh, that kind of makes sense, right? And the number of objects that are stored in cache, if instead of reading them from a cache, we were paying for a copy, it would make, make the whole system completely unusable, complete. So what skip does really is that it gives you the immutability guarantees that you need to put an object in a cache or take an object out of the cache and not worry about the fact that there's a mutable reference that you know still lives or anything, which is a notion of immutability that's very different from most programming languages out there. Most programming languages out there, in fact, all the mainstream, they don't talk about the value. They talk about what the function is going to do. So when I write const in C++, I'm saying me as a function, I don't intend to modify this thing, right? But you're not guaranteeing by any mean that you know somebody else could be holding a mutable reference to that pointer, right? That's that's none of the business of the function. And if you want that function to be able to take that object and put it in a cache without a copy, that's what you need, right? You need that kind of guarantee. So that's what Skip gives you. And then on top of that, we built. Uh, let me kill my Discord. On top of that, we killed. Uh, we killed, we built a key value store. So I often refer to it as a file system. I guess it's the you know, the plan nine that's, you know, blood that, that is still a little bit in me, the plan nine influence, you know, everything is a file and I tend to see things as a file system. But I noticed that whenever I use that term, it confuses people. And yeah, no, I get it. I think I, I wrestle with the same thing. You know, I mentioned I've been thinking about this sort of S3 and caching thing. And I, I see different implementations of it. And one of them is very much like a page cache. And in that world, you're thinking more you know, more akin to like bytes and pages, and it looks a lot like a file system. But then for a lot of the infrastructure, what they end up building is some kind of key value store, right, on, on top of it. And, and so it's like, what, <laughs> what yeah. is the relationship between these two things? Should the, should the byte level page cache thing exist underneath the file, the, the, the key value store? But then when you look at the key value store implementations that you see, a lot of them aren't using, you know, page caches under this, like Neon does. Neon has page server, I believe. But a lot of them are more like write ahead lock you know, right-ahead log style thing. They're storing data on EBS and then they're like periodically flushing that stuff out of S3. So I, I totally get what you're saying there. Just to uh, be concrete, it sounds like the thing you have though is, is the API is like a key value kind of API. Yeah, it's more like a key value store and it has all the stuff you would expect from a key value store. So it has a notion of a transaction, it has MVCC, all the kind of stuff that you, you would not expect from a file system. I yeah. guess it's modeled in my head as the only thing that it has is that it has a hierarchy of collections ordered in directories with slash, I guess. That's maybe the only thing that looks like a file system, but really everything else is closer to a key value store. Interesting. And, you know, sort of 
random question, but is this, or how much of this are you planning on open sourcing? So I know Skip is already open source. We're going to open source all of it okay. very, very soon. Uh, so Skip, the file system, SKDB, our entire awesome. stack, we want to be a uh, 100% open source uh, shop uh, and uh, MIT also. So it's not going to be one of those, you know, <laughs> SSPL, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, do a license stuff. In fact, I, I mean, I, I wanted to open source for a long time, but, you know, we, yeah, we want, we didn't want to get distracted. And so open sourcing can also mean, you know, you, there's a community once you open source and you want to take them seriously. And so when they file issues, you need the time. And so I wanted to have enough money and big enough of a team to make sure that we don't open source something and then we, we don't, you know, follow what the community tells us. So now I think we're at the point where we have what we need to support a community. So, you know, right. right. It all. So on the, the reason I asked that is on the, the skip FS front, like, literally just this week, I was writing, we need more transactional key value stores <laughs> on top of S3. Cause like all these OLTP systems are building, uh, you know, they're building their, their systems on top of, uh, of these things. And right now when I look around, there's like TIKV, which is one that I looked at and they just, uh, were starting to talk about the S3, you know, work that they did. Uh, but there aren't a ton of others. Like I was looking at rocks cloud and I was like, is this thing going to work? And it's, it's, it's basically, no, it's, I don't, I don't think it does. I don't think it provides the semantics you would need. So this is really interesting uh, on, on the, the folder front on SkipFS, that's that's interesting too. I need to think about that. What was the motivation for adding the folder hierarchy? It was just a way to... So the problem is when... So bear in mind that it's a key-value store, but its primary pur purpose is not to be a key-value store. Its primary pur purpose is to have reactive directories, right? Where you have some directories that are the result of a computation. That's what it does. So it's a key-value store where some directories are computed and so it really forms a graph of computation. And the, the motivation for the hierarchy is this, the amount of states that you have in a large system. Like if I take my compiler and I mm -hmm. look at, you know, all the objects that are passed, then typed, then blah, 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 and there are different passes for everything. It actually, it becomes difficult to make sense of things. And then when you have so many objects, you want to subdivide in, into categories. And it's just to help you think about your global states. When your global state gets big, that's what a hierarchy does for you. It helps you, you know, structure things. That's, gotcha. that's what it is. Gotcha. Okay. And then I think I have two questions. The first one is just a quick question. I think I sort of jumped to the conclusion that this was built on a blob store, but is it, is it handling its own persistence or is it using, you know, some other blobby thing or something? No, it's handling its own persistence. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So that was all rewritten from scratch. I think, look, we, the, 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 I mean, most of the blobby things they optimize for write rates you know, mm -hmm. and for us, the write rate cannot be that high anyway, because when you write something, what we need once you've written something is go update a bunch of rea reactive directories, right? Yeah. So there's no point in being super smart about, you know, how are we going to take these millions of writes when we will not be able to handle that kind of load anyway, because we'll be limited by how much the rest of the system can update. Gotcha. And so the, the constraints were very different from what you would typically find in you know a key value store that has been optimized for heavy writes, like for a logging system or something like yeah. that. Yeah, so I think like yeah, yeah. And so this leads me to my the second question I was going to ask, which I think is just I think it would be good to jump into this skip DB use case because I think that's going to inform a lot of what you're saying in terms of you know write versus read and the materialized views and stuff. So can you can you just run through skip DB? As yeah. So so SKDB is uh, basically an SQL interpreter on top of an SQL engine on top of uh, SK Store. So SK Store is this reactive key value store I just described. And in a nutshell, I mean conceptually, it's really simple. Like you have a key value store. You're going to take some of those directories, some of those 
tables, whatever you want to call them. And there will be a representation that is an SQL representation uh, that can hold, you know, an SQL row, basically. And what you're going to do is your queries are going to become virtual uh, directories. So where virtual directory or reactive directories, whatever you want to call them, but where the directory is a result of a, of a computation. So for example, I run select on a table. It's not, I'm not going to walk that table like, you know, I would in a typical database. What I'm going to do is I'm going to create a new folder, a new directory, mm-hmm. and this new directory is going to be a view on the old one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things get a little hairier once you have writes, reads and writes, right? Like once you read and then you write into a new table. So for example, Let's say I were to do updates of plus one on a table within a transaction, right? This is all in one transaction. Right. What will end up happening is you will have to make uh, copies of the table. Well, that might be a bit complicated, but the idea is when you have a transaction, when you're doing multiple reads and writes, you might have to have logical copies of the table at different stages. So let me give you a concrete example because this is probably way too abstract. Imagine my query says insert into table one, and what I'm inserting is a select. It's a select on itself. Mm. You do understand that if I do that, and my select is reactive, so it's something that depends on the table itself, I have a cycle. I have a problem where whenever there's an update, I'm updating myself, which is inserting into myself, and so I have a problem there. Mm -hmm. If you want to break that, what you'll have to do is to introduce basically logical copies of T1, where you're going to say, I have my table one. I'm going to create a virtual view of table one, which is going to be my select, which is going to create a new version of table one. Right? And so that's how things are modeled. Um, and, and I don't know how, how I got involved into so something so such a technical detail. But long story short, your queries in SKDB are in fact a chain of a graph of computation mm-hmm. in this reactive file system. That's a key value store. That's yeah. That. Yeah, it's interesting. I came across a similar kind of concept five or six years ago uh, from a guy named Carl Steinbach at at LinkedIn. And he was coming at it from the data warehousing perspective, but he was basically saying like, hey, imagine we don't have, uh, you know, workflow orchestrators like Airflow and and, and Dagster and Prefect and whatnot, but instead everything is just views. So rather than have the workflow, it's it's views querying stuff. And then you compose more views on top of that. And that is in effect a a DAG, right? It's a a hierarchy of views. Again, very different context on, on the sort of you know, data warehousing, Hive side of things, but similar idea. So the thing that caught my eye with SKDB is that like that kind of paradigm could go a lot of different ways. I think SKDB, you know, there's diffing involved. And so that part to me looked sort of <laughs> edge DB like, and it starts to get into the CRDT realm and how you, you know, merge these, these databases that are, you know, perhaps spread, spread around. I think the, the other one is uh, sort of the materialized, you know, use case of streaming, stream processing and, and uh, stream queries. And then the third one that occurred to me is, is, I think, probably flavored by your history at Facebook, but it was like, okay, so this could be used you know, purely as a persistence layer um, for somebody that's got a bunch of React components, and it's just on the front end, and there's some WASM in the browser that they're using to update a bunch of UI components. When one thing changes, it you know cascades down. So it seems like there's a lot of different things you can do with it. Is there, like, I guess the first question would just be, what was the initial motivation for it? And I think the second is sort of, what do you envision like the the ideal, you know, first customers being? Yeah. So that is a great question. Thanks. Well, first, the, the, the idea of what, how we got engaged into that was we wanted to make the product more approachable. So we are really interested in reactive systems in general. So we have a general programming language called Skip, and you can build 
very complex reactive systems, such as a compiler. I mean, this is pretty, you know, beefy stuff, right? That you can make completely incremental using our technology. The problem is you'd have to learn Skip. And that is, you know, a barrier to entry that is pretty high. And so one of the, one of the things that we, we promised ourselves when we started Skip Labs was none of our product should be, you know, based with the assumption that people are going to learn Skip. And so what SKDB really is, is an attempt to make SK Store more approachable. So now you can mm -hmm. write SQL and you don't gotcha. have to worry about, you know, Skip. Then about the streaming and all the use cases, there are many use cases possible with Skip. So the different thing that you've seen, a lot of it has to do with, you know, how you would deal with conflicts and how you would do merging, obviously. But we found, we tried to find a compromise, right? Like there are two ways you can go about this. You can go full on, you know, last writer wins, which is what a typical database would do. And then this is going to be efficient. But if, you know, somebody goes offline, then the, then, you know, merging things back will, will be difficult or impossible. Or you can go full on, you know, keep the whole list history, like PouchDB style and, and, and these kind of databases. And what's very nice about those kind of databases is that you don't really need a main head, right? Like you can merge them in whatever order you want and they, they will all agree with, they will all get eventually consistent. The, the downside with those kind of databases is that they force you to keep a lot of data around. Like you'll have mm -hmm. to have all these versions around. And so what we tried to do was to get a compromise between the two. And so what we do is we're going to do last writer wins on the server. But if there's a conflict, and only if there's a conflict, we will keep that data around. And then we'll let you choose, you know, how to resolve that conflict. Um, so that's not as flexible as, you know, a database that really does proper versioning, but it, it, it goes a long way. And then if you don't want to deal with conflicts, we'll do a last writer wins for you. And we'll just do the, you know, what a typical database would do. But now if you want more fine-grained behavior and you want to write your own CRDT in the database, you can, right? Mm -hmm. so we, we give you control and, and you can decide what to do. So that's for the different stuff. Then for the streaming stuff, so look, we could do streaming and it would work. Uh, would it shine? I don't think so. I mean, I think it would work and I think it would be within a reasonable range in terms of performance of the state of the art. Like if I had to bet, I would say we probably would be 2x slower maybe five yeah, that, that's what no. i was gonna kind of poke at because earlier you were saying you know it's not optimized for heavy writes right it's not it's not and, and the, yeah. the, the reason is what we our use case is you have a notion of data you have a notion of query most of that data doesn't change all that much mm -hmm. and you want those queries to be so when something mm -hmm. changes you want the queries that are affected to respond relatively quickly and so what i mean by relatively quickly is log n on the size of the table, not O of n. You don't want to have mm -hmm. to scan anything when you do a write, right? And so that's going to be a use case where, let's say, a cache, for example. Like you have a lot of queries in your cache. And when something changed, you want to know the queries, you know, that are affected by this change. And you want that to happen relatively quickly. But if your use case is you have a couple of queries that are very well identified, and you have a host of changes, like they're coming from a log or something like that, I don't think you can beat a streaming engine at this. Because what's going to happen is the streaming engine forms a sort of natural parallelism, right? Where the stuff comes into the, in, inside the pipeline, that becomes a node that can run on one thread, and then that's processed in a pipeline of changes. And I don't think that you, you're going to do a much better job you know, than, than a streaming engine. So if your use case is you have a couple of queries well identified, and you have data changes very, very quickly, 
I think a, a streaming engine is going to be better. Uh, so yeah, that's not the use case we are after. But yeah, the typical use case we in, in, envision is you have an app, you want this app to become much more responsive because you would like to have the data for a particular user locally. So what you're going to do is you're going to suck that data in in your browser directly or in your service, in your node service, in your Python service, or on your phone or whatever it is. And then you're going to run queries over th that data as if the data was, you know, directly the data from the server. And the latency is going to be awesome because it's all going to be there. Consistency is going to be much easier to deal with because whenever you want to change something, you just update the local database and we will take care of, you know, propagating all of that. And it will all be live for free. Meaning if your database is touching a particular object and this object is used by another client on another browser, whenever you touch this object, that client is going to see it live. So if you want to build something collaborative, something, you know, that feels live, it's going to be very easy. And the key to get this stuff right is privacy. And I think that's what's lacking today in today's system. If you want a system like that to work well, you need a real privacy layer that's where you can really express with complex rules who can see what. Because if you don't have that, how many use cases do you have where you want your user to be able to see the data of all the other users? You know, yeah. how often does this happen, right? So privacy yeah. is key to make that work. Yeah, that's, that's I think, a really interesting point. The, the space where I've seen some work going there is specifically around the work that, that uh, this database company Nile is doing, where uh, they, um, they're coming at it more from a SaaS multi-tenant kind of thing, point of view versus sort of an edge uh, database point of view. And from the SaaS multi-tenant point of view, it's exactly what you said. You have uh, a SaaS service uh, that is, has a bunch of tenants. Each of those tenants doesn't need to see the other tenants' data. And so they, you know, um, they've overlaid some semantics on top of the PostgreSQL SQL to basically set tenant IDs and then it automatically, you know, hides what doesn't need to, to be seen. On the edge side, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen a whole lot in that space. Um, and so I think what you're saying really makes sense to me. Uh, I think, how are you guys thinking about that? Is that something that's just gated on the server side? And when well, you connect? No, actually, I mean, I think to get it working properly on an edge, the, only, the reason why you haven't seen it is I don't think you can do a good job without um, materialized views. And that's why you haven't seen that. Because what will happen is you have a user. And so what, what you will see in typical databases today is you have rules on what a user can do on a table. And sometimes those rules are actually pretty fine grain where you'll be able to, you know, say, let's say, you know, can I read this? Can I modify this? Yes, if not, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. But typically on an edge database, you will need the same version of the data with different views depending on the context. So let me give you a concrete example. Imagine you want to build a like button, right? So you have your user that user is seeing objects and you want that user to be able to like stuff, click on the stuff that this user likes. So you want the user to be able to like its own likes or unlike its own likes, right? Um, but you don't want that user to be able to read all the other likes, at least not if they didn't shoot, then no, and certainly not modify other, other users' likes, right? So you need some fine-grained access on who can you know, do what. And so already expressing that with table permissions would be would be a little bit of a challenge. But let's say, let's say you manage, right? Let's say you do. Your problem is you want another view of this stuff, which gives you, let's say, a life count or some other query, right? And you want to feed that back into a system with a different visibility, right? And today, nobody does that, right? And so the only way you would have today to build something like that would be to either with a trigger where, you know, you would maintain a count by hand and do all sorts of things. But then that's what I call a materialized 
a poor man's materialized view, materialized view. That's what it is. You're maintaining a materialized view in, in, in your trigger. Or you would build a service, right? You would watch the changes on that particular table and aggregate some count and whatnot. And you run into all the classic problems, right? Like concurrency, uh, transaction did not go through, the service goes down. The, I mean, all that fun stuff, right? And so I think to have an edge database where you can really pack a lot of the action on the client side will require what I described, materialized view plus privacy. Yeah, interesting. I, th- thinking back to the edge privacy stuff, I, I think the, the where we're at right now, sort of state of the art that I see is really just, you know, one SQLite DB per user. <laughs> and then, you know, whatever data is in that SQLite DB for that user is, is what they get. It sounds like what you're talking about is maybe more fine, much more fine grained, right? Yeah, we want to users to have a view of the database and yeah. then we ship them what they're supposed to see on yeah. that client. And then they get to interact with that mini database that is an edge database, really, uh, on on in their browser as if it was their backend, and not have to worry about you know the backend, what's going on in the backend. Yeah, and, and so I have to imagine the the permission controls are extremely expressive and fine grained because it's essentially SQL, right? Like you, you you get to say whatever you want as long as you can express it in SQL. That becomes the the data that they're allowed to see versus you know more row and column level ACLs. I mean, there are rolling columns level uh, too, so yeah. you can you can do that too. Sure. But the yeah. killer feature is you can use arbitrary SQL, where you can say, "Yeah, I yeah. want you know the the like count to be visible by the friends of this person who has become friends with that person less than two months ago," and you can do that. You know, yeah. well, that's <laughs> something you you would have struggled with in in a typical system. Yeah, well, it's funny that you raise that exact use case because you know the friends of friends query is sort of a classic database killer, and the fact that uh, you can not only express that, but that you can have it materialize means that the read queries are going to be pretty reasonable for for sort of social networking style queries. Oh, friends uh, of friends might get a little bit big, though. It depends. I mean, you you need to keep network, that way, reasonable yeah. right, in size uh, okay. because friends of friends of friends, there's a level of n where this is not going to work anymore, unless if you you're running you know social network with a hundred people, and then that's fine. But that's right. If the, the challenge is with the kind of approach that we we are bringing to the table, that I think they're twofold. One is expressing what you want in SQL and keep the size reasonable, but I think that that happens more or less naturally. And two, keep the petition that the user can see reasonable. Too. So you don't want the user. So let's say you know you are in a setup where there are a lot of public documents. Well, you don't you prob you don't want to get all those public documents if they're very large on your clients. So you'll have to <clears throat> come up with a petition that makes sense for a user. So ideally, you all the data that this user can interact with can just fit on the client and you don't have to worry about it, and then that's great. But if you cannot afford that, then you need to come up with a reasonable way to petition the data. Yeah, okay, that's what I was gonna ask. So there is a model with SKDB where you know, not all the data the user is interested in can fit on the client. Uh, and that SKDB can still handle that. And I'm assuming it just pushes the queries to the server. No, what it does is it lets you establish a filter. So you can express a filter on the tables you want using an SQL filter, SQL expression. And then we will give you just that data. That's that's the way it works. Gotcha. Okay, so you, you essentially are, are, all the data, all the state does have to fit on the client side, but you have, you know, essentially all the SQL query you know, expressiveness that you need in order to make that happen. Is that a fair? Yeah, it's statement? a fair assessment, but I, I still think it's going to be a challenge. I, I think most of the time it's just going to work. I think most people won't have to worry too much because 
look, how much data can your users, can, can a user really see? Like if you look at most apps today, I'm pretty sure this is going to be very reasonable and it's going to fit on one gig of RAM, but uh, you're freezing a little bit here. There we go. You're back. Okay. <laughs> you want to rewind 10 seconds and, and yeah, start yeah. again? <laughs> yeah. So I was saying, I think most people won't have to worry about this, about partitioning because, you know, a gig is a lot of memory and that's what we can fit in Wasm. And I'm pretty sure that for most use cases, you just give, you know, all the data that this user can see and it will just work. But if you have to worry about that, then that's something that is a little bit ad hoc right now. We don't have a good solution other than you need to sit down and think hard about what you want the user to have on, 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 their, on their device. Gotcha. Interesting. And then the classic question I always ask every edge person that I talk to, like, what are the durability guarantees on this? If, my, if I write something to my client and I like begin and commit, is it really committed? <laughs> Does it go to the server? Like what, what happens uh, with, with durability? So your durability guarantees are uh, when you write something locally, if the, 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 between the moment where you wrote it locally uh, and the moment where it was sent to the network, your browser was not killed. Um, so we don't, right now, SKDB does not support persistence in the browser. We have a branch implementation of this, but we have not pushed it. Uh, at least we're, we're probably not going to have it in, in our initial release for two reasons. And I know this is going to be very unpopular because SQLite is doing a big push on that and you know getting a Wasm version to work. But I would say, number one, I'm not comfortable push, putting data in persistent storage in a browser if it's not encrypted. Because some browsers are actually shared among users. Uh, you you have computers, you know, in a library, for example, or in, in, in a public space. And people have a model of how the web works that does not match the persistent storage of, of the browser. So, for example, if I go and I log in and my app is using SKDB and SKDB is storing stuff on the persistent storage and then I log out, I when I log out, I have a mental model that my data is gone. and so if you want a public computer, that, that, that could be, you know, misleading. So I would be more comfortable. I'm not comfortable storing in persistent storage in a browser, something that hasn't been encrypted. So that's one. The second thing is that Safari makes life really hard with this kind of stuff. They break persistent storage. They wipe out data, you know, after one week without usage. They do a lot of things that's like, if you put persistent storage out there, you're kind of telling your users if it's in the API that they should use it, right? But do I want to encourage people to use persistent storage if they envision some of their users to be in Safari? Probably not. I would tell them unless, you know, you have a good guarantee that your users are using Chrome. If you're going to rely on persistent storage, I think Safari... So, okay, so that was... Let's close the, the parent on the rant on persistent storage on browsers. But I think we're not ready to have to use persistent storage. in a, So what does it mean when you write something in a browser? It means that if the process is killed between the moment where you, you've written and before the time it reached the network, well, your data is gone. So even if, you know, we came back with a commit that said transaction successful, that data could be gone, right? So now let's imagine that this succeeded, then uh, once it's reached the server, then it will become durable on the server and you will know of it uh, if, you, if you ask for it. Uh, the, the client will know that something has been acknowledged in sync by the server. So these are the guarantees that we have. Like when you write locally at first, you don't have many guarantees until the server comes back and says, well, this stuff was actually written. Or there could be problems uh, when you have been breaking privacy rules 
but this should be very rare because we also check them client side. So the only case where you're going you're to break a privacy rule is if there was a race between the moment where you've written something and somebody changed the privacy rule server side and that happened at the same time. There was a racy behavior. So that should be very rare. Gotcha. And I guess because the system's you know, set up to be reactive, the end user, when they make a, a mutation, I'm assuming the you know, UI component or whatever it is that they're, they're waiting on, is that going to wait for the local? No, or for the yeah, that's, that's, that's hooked up on the local stuff. To, okay, okay. To, you yeah. know, give an experience that's, that's more live. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. Yeah, low latency. Okay, awesome. Okay, so we touched on a lot here. Open source, we talked about skip lang, skip, well, I'm, I'm using the wrong terms, uh, skip FS, which you called something else, skip store, I think, yeah, and then uh, SKDB. I think by the time we ship this out, everything's going to be <laughs> available because I'm going I'm to wait on you. But is there anything else you want to plug or, or touch on before we wind things down? Yeah, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about concurrency and how I think reactivity really changes the game on how we approach concurrency and, and especially systems that require high availability. I mean. One of the things that's, that's so, the, and, and, and I, I, we talked about this last week, so it's going to be a repeat for you, but the typical way you're going to, you're going to deal with, with concurrency normally in a, in a database is you have locks at all, all kind of different levels, right? You have a lock at the table level, at the row level, and, and what you're really trying to do is have locks that are as precise as possible because the more precise you are and the, the less you're going to block other potential queries, right? But you have some queries that... And the fact that there's these locks, you could deadlock, so you need to be able to roll back, and so you need a journal and all that fun stuff, right? But some queries require, you know, a lot, need to touch on a lot of data, right? And then you don't really have a good solution. Either you block everybody else, or you, re, you roll back every time, you know, somebody has touched something that you were looking at, and now you have a fairness issue. You could be starved for access to the resources, right? And so I think reactivity brings something pretty cool to the table, which is that what you can do when your transaction is reactive is to go build it you know, on your own, on a thread that is not blocking anyone. And then when you come back and it's commit time and you know exactly what, what you want to do, what you can do because the transaction is reactive is only update what has changed between the moment you started and the, 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 the moment where you're trying to commit. And that in practice is, is really a game changer when you have a system that is a mix of fat, complex queries that can, you know, last for several minutes, uh, but, you know, within, at the same time, f writes that, that without blocking the system, right? And, and uh, I, I find it really interesting. So there's one caveat with this approach, which is that the data cannot leave the transaction until we reach the end of the tr transaction. Meaning, if I'm going to let you go off and build your transaction, right? And then when you come back, we're going to incrementally update it. I need to have a full view of uh, what you were really trying to do. Now, if I give data out of the transaction before I've reached the end, then I don't know if you have not executed some Python code that will you know, make the rest of the transaction depend on what was read before. And so if, if you build it that way, because I don't have my hands on this Python code, my incremental update is going to be wrong. And so I cannot do it. And so the one caveat is your entire transaction has to basically be built at once, which is not as convenient as, you know, being able to uh, do that as you go. But I think that's, um, that's a pretty cool approach on, you know, how, how to deal with, uh, with concurrency. So the part that kind of breaks my brain uh, is the, the kind of replay part where you come back, 
after you've run through the initial pass of the, the query and you need to merge you know, the stuff that's changed. Because I would think that the ordering might matter on that. And, and maybe this is, is where I'm mistaken. But you know, if, if you're merging changes in after the fact, is it possible that those changes could have affected things downstream of them that you've already computed? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, but those things I've already computed, they will come back at commit time and they will be incrementally updated, right? So let's do it together. Let's say, yeah. you know, I have insert of select. So I have a select that selects, you know, uh, some amount of rows in my thing, and I'm going to insert mm -hmm. them in a table. So now comes commit time, and turns out that one of those rows in my select was deleted. Because the whole system is reactive, I'm able to say, delete this thing, and it will just propagate in log n and figure out, you know, which part of the query needs to be updated. And I now see. I okay. end up, yeah. And so that's, that's where the magic is. So what you do is you do that part under a lock, but you're yeah. holding the lock for a very, very brief amount of time. You're not blocking everybody else. I see. So I, I, I understand now. It's as if you let people go off with their queries and their rights, and you're like, go nuts. When you come back, we'll reconcile. Yeah. Which... And, and the, the merging happens at that point once they come back uh, with anything that's changed. Interesting. I'm going to have to think about this some more. <laughs> The, the skeptic in me is like, there must be some operations where this is, it, it results in a full recompute of the, the query anyway, but I can't think of any. Everything seems uh, incremental off the top of my head. Uh, you know, it's an insert, update, or delete, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe something like uh, median, right? So would that yeah. change, or, you know, I'm trying to think of these uh, statistical computations that uh, are there difficult will to compute. There cases where you will have yeah. to recompute everything. But then again, when that happens, you're not worse off than an existing database. Yeah. So it's so a worst case is you're performing the same way as you would with an existing DB. Best maybe case two, is maybe two x lower because you ran it once and then had to rerun it. Yeah. And then you had to rerun it. So maybe two x lower, but you're going to be in the yeah. same order of magnitude of a typical database. Gotcha. Very interesting. Interesting. Okay. Great. Well, that's all I had. <laughs> you don't yeah, have anything else? Fun. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. That was uh, yeah, that was man. I'm, I'm excited.